This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Uh, Something that we haven't talked about on the show before, or at least very much about, are how, well, small business owners or business owners in general have made Mm -hmm. mistakes when faced with financial difficulty. I think financial difficulty would come up pretty quickly for Mm -hmm. a small business owner or a business owner. You certainly be aware of it. Um... Let's talk about let's talk about the differences. I, one of the pieces that I was interested in is about that personal liability right. being a uh, being incorporated or a limited entity, uh, and that personal liability and how those can play yeah, against let, each other. Yeah, let's start there because yeah, we focus really on individuals and on small businesses. So I see people you know every day of the week who they've got either you know a small corporation, you know maybe they're a drywaller or a contractor, a truck driver, a real estate agent, but they've set up a corporation and. I see people that, you know, just have proprietorships, which means essentially they're doing work in their own name. What's the big difference between them? Well, yeah, what is the yeah. big difference? And it's funny when you ask people that have a corporation, you know, why did you incorporate? What were the benefits you were hoping for? Quite often they can't articulate them. They're just not sure. They said, oh, my lawyer told me it might be good, but you know, hey, hey I'm just incorporated and that's that. So essentially when you incorporate, you're creating a separate legal entity. So you and myself, Elaine, we're both separate legal entities. And if yes. we created a corporation, that would be like a legally separate person. So that person can have assets, that person can have obligations, liabilities, and that person can essentially carry on business. The reason why you would incorporate is to try to put some distance between you and the business. So you would say, you know, if this business doesn't go that well, um, I don't want to have all the liability to myself personally. So you'd set it up as an incorporated business with the idea that you would have some limitation of your liability. What we're going to talk about a little bit today is most of the time that assumption doesn't play out. You know, it's corporation theory. Theoretically, it limits your liability, but a lot of the liabilities a business can incur, they're going to follow you. If you are the director, if you're the person that's operating that business, regardless of whether it's incorporated or not, you may still be on the hook, which kind of frustrates some of the benefits of incorporation. So we're going to go into that a little bit. Okay, so if I so if I have my own business and I incorporate, then if some, if it doesn't go well, then my assets can get attached to the failure or to they can go after my assets? Is that what you're saying? So potentially that could be the the end state. Okay. So what would happen is, you know, the business is going to start operating, right? And the business is going to start incurring some obligations typically. And then we're going to hit our first frustration of legal liability here is no one is going to loan business or agree, you know, to advance credit to a corporation that has, you know, no history, no assets, sure. no liabilities. That makes sense. So before anybody's going to, you know, put themselves at risk, they're probably going to make the owner or the director guarantee personally. So exactly what you said, Elaine, if that business can't pay, they're going to come to you personally to to basically come after those amounts. Now that's for things that you consciously sign on for, but there are things that you're automatically liable 
just when you have a corporation by being a director. Okay, let's talk about those. What are the automatic ones? Well, so some of them are just pure common sense and you would really want it to be set up this way. And one of them is employee wages. So you can't start a corporation, tell everybody that you're going to pay them wages and then suddenly, you know, go off in the middle of the night and not pay them and expect to get away from it. So any wages that are owed to an employee for up to six months of work, um, they've got to be paid by the corporation or if the corporation doesn't pay, the owner or essentially the director of the corporation is going to be held personally liable for those wages. Okay. So employee wages are a huge thing. The other amounts are typically government amounts that are owing. So when you pay your employee wages, you've got to withhold taxes and send those back to the government. Very quickly, when a business starts to go south a little bit, of course, you pay your people, but you've got this money in your hand here and, you know, it's the government's money. It's supposed to go back to the government, but quite often that money gets used in business operations and a government debt can build up. That debt the director is going to have to pay personally as well. So again, the liability limitation of a corporation, it doesn't work for things like employee wages, for employee source deductions, and also for GST. So you're doing transactions, you're collecting GST, similar to the employee wage deductions. You know, you got this money and you're struggling to make ends meet. Should you send it to the government? You absolutely have to send it to the government. It's their money. And if you don't, you'll be personally liable. Now, if I've set up, if I'm doing business just by under my name, that makes me also very... Liable. Oh right? yeah, then you're you're fully exposed, and I think that the point of my discussion here is you're pretty well fully exposed <laughs> anyway. Anyway, yeah. Okay, that's the message for most people, unless you know there's a lot of complexity, you know, a bunch of employees or you know a few locations, you know, have that real discussion with your advisor or even you know call us and we can talk about it a little bit of what benefits do you think you'll get by being incorporated because there are costs every year you've got to do corporate tax return for the corporation an annual information form for the corporation you know it's not thousands of dollars but it is every year you've got some obligations whereas if you're operating as a proprietorship you don't have those obligations. You do your regular taxes, you show your self-employment income, and very clearly you understand that you've got personal liability here for things that the business incurs and for government amounts as well. But the key message that you have right now is the fact that even if you are incorporated, you're still exposed. You still have to pay yeah. out that money for wages. You still have to pay the government their di- what they're due. Exactly. So if someone is listening to, to this broadcast and they say, I've got an incorporated business, I've only got so much money to go around and I've got to decide who to pay, who you pay first is your employees, their source deductions, and your GST. Those are the most important debts that you need to satisfy. Okay. Um, what are the what are the things that that business owners uh, should avoid doing when they can see that they're in financial difficulty? Yeah, like like any good thing in life, if you know you got a problem coming down down the pike here, the worst thing you can do is to procrastinate, right? The worst thing you can do is to avoid the problem, put your head in the sand. You I was going to say, so that's not a good idea? That's, yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> it's not going to get better and it will get worse. Okay. Um, because, you know, what, what can happen is, you know, the longer you wait, quite often the suite of options that you have available to you shrinks. Sure. So, you know, if you've got some suppliers and you need them to work with you and give you extended terms and, you know, not enforce when you're delinquent, they might be open to doing that if you told them right away when you're having problems. If it's three or six months, they've been chasing you, they've had to get lawyers involved, and now you want to compromise with them, it's going to be a lot more difficult. Yeah, I don't know when where, when pro- uh, procrastination is a good idea on anything, right? Yeah, it just no. doesn't seem to be a benefit. Mm-hmm. All right, what else? Well, not planning is, you know, a, a 
big aspect as well. So, you know, really planning about should I be incorporated or should I operate as a proprietorship and what are the benefits there, but also planning out your cash flow. So understanding, you know, on a monthly basis, here are the business obligations. Here's what the government requires each month. And the government very clearly says, if you can't satisfy our obligations each month, your right decision is to shut your doors the next day. Mm. So you've got to go through and, you know, understand, are you going to be able to satisfy those obligations in lean times? Because many businesses, they're cyclical. You know, if you're a realtor, you're not selling a whole lot of homes in December, but you've still got tax obligations. You may have other corporate, you know, costs that you have to make each month. So you've got to plan ahead. So who's going to, who would be the the type of person or the organization that's going to help me do that plan? Because that sounds like a really important plan to make. You know, your accountant is usually a good place to start. Okay. So, you know, whoever's helping you with your financial statements, they can help you set up a spreadsheet. You know, obviously we're happy to, you know, talk in a general sense of, about the business, but, you know, quite often it falls down to the individual. You know, there's nothing new under the sun here. You've got to figure out what's your revenue, what money do you expect to come in, what's it going to cost you to make that revenue. And, you know, if there's a mismatch between those, that's where you've got some issues. So I think sometimes, and I definitely see it in clients that come to see me, they get paralyzed and thinking, I just need the perfect tool. I need the perfect budgeting spreadsheet to get through all of this. But no, you just need to ask some very basic, simple questions. You know, your cash flow can be about three lines. What's my in- income? What's my expenses? And what's left at the end of the month there? There's no magic is what you're That's telling right. me. Yeah. No magic. All right. What about getting more, uh, figuring out how to get more money, like borrowing money, going out and getting some? Sometimes it can be a good decision if you've done the right plan and you figured out, you know what, I'm going to be lean for two or three months. I know exactly what I'm going to use this capital for, extra money I'm going to inject into the business. It can be the right decision. Most of the time when I see folks, they haven't done that type of a, of a thought. They've said, you know, emotionally, I'm so attached to this business. And I understand that. That could be, you know, a 20-year family business, you know, so much invested beyond the financial in it. But you really have to look at, are you throwing good money after bad? You right. know, borrowing more money to invest, quite often the business isn't going to be able to borrow that on its own. You're going to be borrowing that personally, right? And if you set up as a corporation, you've tried to limit some liabilities, again, you're losing that limitation of liabilities. So you may be putting yourself personally at more risk by continuing to invest in a business if you're not sure it's going to make it. And I always sort of see the emotional side of these things too. That could be a really difficult decision for some folks, especially if it's not just a family thing, but like a dream business, right? Like I've wanted to do this all my life. I can't believe it's not working. Yeah. And, you know, quite often just shutting down the business doesn't necessarily mean it's the end of the line. It doesn't mean you can never do this work. You know, quite often people will shut down a corporation. They may go through a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal, and they may start up even while they're in the bankruptcy or in the proposal a very similar business, but starting fresh. Right. Starting fresh without all the hangover of 20 years of, you know, financial, you know, artifacts behind you of obligations, of leases, of different things like that. And having learned a whole bunch of really important lessons yeah. too, right? I mean, it makes sense to me that there's a there's a smart, thoughtful way of doing something, and then there's the other way. Yeah. And if it gets you to that smart, thoughtful way, then boy, it's a good it's a good thing at the end of the day. Yeah. And, I don't know. And the, well, the time to have all of these discussions and all of these, these plans are when you're not in the eye of the storm, right. right? You know, if you're already, the business is insolvent, you can't honor its obligations each month, you know, your personal assets are already at risk. At that point, the worst thing you can be doing is trying to say, well, what do I need to do now to structure to protect myself? 
it's too late. You have to do it, you know, when the business is solid, when you're starting out structure appropriately. Now, we've we've touched on the personal resources. You don't think it's a very good idea uh, to accumulate personal debt to support the business. What about personal guarantees? I mean, that, you know, I can see that that that's a pitfall that somebody could fall into easily. Yeah, what I don't think is a good idea is signing these types of guarantees or obligations without understanding 100% that this could be called and you might have to be on the hook for it. And that's the key, right? Yeah, anytime you co-sign for anybody, whether it's a business or not, understand 100% of that debt could accrue to you. And sometimes the bank might say, okay, we're going to extend these terms. We're going to give you another six months if you'll agree to give us a personal guarantee on all of our indebtedness. And sometimes the entrepreneur will see no other option but to do that. And then suddenly, again, they've compromised all their personal assets. What about widening that scope, getting more people involved, putting, getting their money in? Usually not a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like a good yeah, idea, though. If, if someone tells you they want you to be a director of their corporation, ask a lot of questions. A lot of questions. Because as soon as you're a director, you can be on the hook for any new liability, corporate tax, sorry, not corporate tax, but um, source deductions, GST, different amounts owing to government. Mm, that's, and that sounds like small print stuff. Hmm right? Paying attention to the small print of what what your obligations are. Yeah, you may sign on as a director, not appreciating that you actually have a lot of responsibilities to make sure this thing operates correctly. I think it's important too, just to remind folks, if any of this resonates with you at all, you've got your own small business, you know someone who, who, who may have the business who's running into financial trouble, or at least on that pathway, uh, the very best advice, get some help. Uh, Sands and Associates are a very, very good place to start. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. To get a financial fresh start, call 1-800-661-3030 for that free consultation and to find an office near you. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So before we get into things, Blair, can you talk a little bit about or explain what you do at Sands & Associates as a licensed insolvency trustee? I know it's quite a title, and it actually means something, though. So let's talk about that. Yeah, so a licensed insolvency trustee um, is the only person licensed and endorsed by the federal government to help you deal with your debts. So if you've got a situation where you owe too much money, more than you're able to realistically pay off, whether it's the government, whether it's a bank, whether it's even a personal creditor, a licensed insolvency trustee is the person that can help you either reduce the debt through a consumer proposal um, or help you restructure your entire financial health uh, through a personal bankruptcy. Okay, so there's two things that we're always talking about or looking at. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's look at a case where a consumer proposal made sense as a debt management option for someone. Sure. And, you know, consumer proposals are about two-thirds of the the volume of work we do these days. So people coming through the door, you know, five years ago, no one had heard of a consumer proposal. Um, Now people coming through the door, people are asking for, you know, I need to do a proposal. I know this is a good solution for me. So it's about two-thirds of the folks that we meet with. So the situation that I came across recently, it was a 30-year-old gentleman. um, He had about $34,000 dollars of consumer debts. Most of it was your standard, you know, MasterCard, Visa, lines of credit, things like that, but also about $5,000 in government student loans. And he had just recently graduated just a couple of years ago. Okay. So that's a lot of money, third, over $34,000 yeah. in debt. 
Yeah, and you'd you'd ask why, right? Sure. Yeah, and you know when I sat down with him, we figured out well when he was going to school, he couldn't work. You know, he was trying to work part time, but he also had some personal health issues. So you know, it was all he could do just to show up to class. But then a lot of his therapies, his drugs, and things like that, they weren't covered. So you know, Mm. something had to give. And what what happened was he had this credit limit that could be used, and he essentially used it to survive. Which kind of makes sense that you would do that, right? I mean, I'm sure he's not alone in, in, in dealing with a debt situation by doing that. Yeah, I don't find anybody, you know, goes lightly when they, when they know, hey, well, I'm spending money on my credit just to survive. They don't do that as their first option. That's right. kind of the last resort. And, you know, this gentleman as well, um, he had a vehicle that he had financed, you know, it was a Kia Optima. It was a couple of years old. Uh, one of the first things that he started to do was, was he stopped paying on the vehicle. He's like, you know, I can't afford the car payment and tuition and living. So something's got to go here. So by the time he he met me, you know, he had already had his vehicle seized from him oh, even a couple of years back there. Oh, that's such a drag. And it's not like it was a big, fancy, expensive no. SUV. It was a Kia, for yeah, goodness it, sakes. Yeah, it, it wasn't over, you know, overpriced for what he needed. No. Right. Right. Okay, so um, what were you able to do for him? Yeah, so he came in and then sat down with me and we figured out, okay, he's now graduated, he's now able to earn income, um, but he's got nowhere near the income that he's going to need to service this debt. So we looked at what are the options and we looked at if he filed for bankruptcy, what would happen? And, you know, he wasn't too interested in bankruptcy. He was just starting off his career. Uh, he realized, you know, if I go in, in, into bankruptcy, I might get get rid of the debt quicker than through a proposal, but that's not really what I want to do. I want to, you know, make a good faith effort to pay back what I can afford. And it is a scary word. Mm-hmm. It's still a scary word for people. Oh, yeah, absolutely. People hesitate to call us because they think all we can do is bankruptcy. And again, that's about a third. Two-thirds of it is helping you avoid bankruptcy. Right. So what we were able to do is we filed a consumer proposal. When he walked in the door to see us, he was owing $34,000 plus interest, you know, getting collection calls, interest rates anywhere from, you know, 10 to 12% on the line of credit, over 25% on some of the credit cards. Yeah. We filed a consumer proposal. We took the $34,000 of debt to $12,000, 12600 that, That's incredible that's less than half yeah. of the 34000 he owed. Yeah. You know what, what's incredible, Elaine? He said that the payment in the consumer proposal, so it was 210 per month is what he's got to pay over 60 months. $210. Yep. Yeah. That was over $1,000 per month less than what his minimum payments were. Wow. And so how long did he take to pay it? Well, he's in the proposal now. So, so this, he's in it. Yeah, right so now. he's he's a couple of years in, I think, as as of now. Um, he's, you know, working through things. He's making his payments, and he's doing fine now. And he's got a job making money mm-hmm. based on the education that he went into uh, debt for, Yeah, I'm going to assume. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's working in the field, and that's an important point, too, because he had just graduated from university. So by law, even though he's done a consumer proposal on his debt, he's still going to have to deal with the part of the student loan that's not paid back because it hasn't been seven years since he graduated school. So there is a waiting period, but it doesn't mean that it was the wrong idea for him to do a proposal. It dealt with all of his other debt, it stopped all of the interest, and it gave him the peace of mind, the, you know, the, the, the space that he needed to restructure himself. And it still brought his, his monthly payment down to $210, which sounds very, very manageable. Exactly. He, again, over $1,000 a month in minimum payments, and he would have paid that for 30, 40 years plus. He would have paid the debt back multiple times over and probably never been able to save money. Right. Okay. So what about an example of someone who came to see you, um, but you didn't 
uh, let them file a consumer proposal or personal bankruptcy? Like how do yeah. how do you because that's kind of your business. Right. How do you how did you manage that? And that's something that I think I, I'm most proud of too. Is you know at Sands and Associates we look at the, the client and we figure out you know if we've got the solution that's great. But if there's a solution that's better for the person that doesn't involve us, if all we have to do is give you some information and then with that you're empowered to do what you need to do, you know that's success for us as well. So not everybody that walks in the door, far from it, um, ends up filing a consumer proposal or a personal bankruptcy. Okay. So with this situation, it was uh, someone they were in their mid-30s, and unfortunately, she had had a battle with cancer over the past few years. Now, oh. yeah, and it, it happens, right? You know, right. she successfully came through the other side, but a lot of treatments, a lot of therapies, a lot of periods of time, again, with, with no income. Um, she had about $8,000 of credit card debt and a really small amount owing to the government, about $300. So, you know, nothing to get too excited about. Um, 8000 to the government, you'd be more excited about, sure. but it was mainly the credit card debt that she was concerned about. Yeah. Now, what she had for assets was interesting, too, because she had worked, you know, during her 20s pretty steadily. So there was a retirement account there, a locked-in retirement account worth about $41,000. And if she could have touched that, she would have cashed it in to pay the debts. But the whole point of it is it's locked in. You can't touch it until you're 65. So she had this money there, but she had no savings. Um, She had leased a vehicle, um, and she just really didn't know what to do um, because as of now, she didn't have any income. So she was supported by her family while she was awaiting a disability pension application. Okay. So... What was the solution? Well, there were a couple things that she could have done. So with no income, a proposal doesn't make any sense because you'd just be giving her another payment every month that's not going to be possible to be paid. Fair enough. So, you know, two things she could do. One would be to file for personal bankruptcy, which would definitely deal with the issue. But the other one is actually to do nothing. See, that sounds crazy to yeah. me. Not do, and, and I don't know if I'd be able to not do something, right? Yeah. So. What did you, what did she do? She had to have done something. Well, exactly, and, and I'll explain it to you because you know doing nothing sounds a little bit cute, but but essentially that that's what I'm telling her is you know oftentimes the worst thing you can do is just to continue making minimum payments month after month when you know you're never going to pay off the debt. Okay. What happens um, when you when you stop paying on your creditors is they can do a couple of things to you, but it's generally not as bad as you might anticipate. Um, so they can call you. They can call you know morning, noon, and night six days, six seven days a week. Um, but you can stop that call just by sending them a legal letter. So I gave this individual a copy of a legal letter from Consumer Protection BC that says, I don't consent to phone calls. She sends the letter and all the calls stop. So, you know, that's the number one harassing thing. You can stop it with a letter. Right. And, and, it's, and it's, uh, uh, the juris- it's under the jurisdiction of the provincial government. That's right. It's not you making no. up that rule, but they actually it's made up that It's consumer protection rule. legislation, but yeah. who is ever going to tell you about it? Not the person that's trying to collect from you. Of course. They're going to say, you have to take my call. Well, no, you don't. You can send them a letter saying, I only deal with these things by mail, so please take all this venom, put it down on paper, and I'll be happy to look at it. Right. So she was able to stop that. Yeah. And then what, sh- what I encouraged her to do as well was to open a new bank account somewhere where she doesn't owe anybody money. And what that means is any money that she does have, any savings or support from family, that's going to be protected. The only way anybody can ever touch your money in your bank is if you already owe that bank money. If you've got a credit card somewhere, you should be banking somewhere else or if they take you to court to sue you. And what we determined here is the odds of this lady getting sued for an $8,000 credit card debt when she's on a disability pension, it's not going to happen. Okay, so that, that, the key, though, is, is setting up an account in another bank that yeah. you're not already connected to. Yeah, protect the assets that you have, send the letter to stop the calls, and quite simply, that's all some people need to do. Very cool. So if any of this resonates with you, if this sounds like your situation, somebody that you know their situation, or your own, and you think, okay, maybe I'll, that's all I need to do is sit down and talk with somebody about this, you're listening to the right thing. 
the show's dollars and cents. Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. You can get that fresh start. It's very easy. The number 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation and to find an office near you. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So we've been talking about uh, the different generations that this province and I guess this country is made up of. I guess we could probably even say it's mm-hmm. bigger than that. Uh, we're talking in this in this segment about BC's pre-retirement and retirement generation and those facts, uh, those folks in debt. So again, financial challenges. Everybody experiences them. Doesn't matter what age uh, we're at. And Sands and Associates does this annual study looking at trends and key information, all the data about the BC residents facing financial difficulties. And you found this is one of the other groups, pre-retirement, retirement generation. Who are these folks? I mean, we've sort of defined them, but what mm-hmm. kind of age group are we talking about today? Yeah, so for our survey population, we uh, defined anyone that's pre-retirement, retirement as somebody aged 55 and over. Um, and, you know, definitely uh, this is a you know, a topic that's getting more and more airplay these days, you know, the idea of senior citizens in debt, you know, retiring with debt or continuing to accumulate debt in retirement. And the reason it's getting a lot more airplay is because it's a massive problem. It's bigger than it ever was before. Uh, There was a study done a couple years ago by the Vanier Institute where they compared the bankruptcy rate for senior citizens uh, from 1980 until 2015. And it wasn't double, it wasn't triple, it wasn't five times higher, it was 19 times higher. That's a lot. It's a ridiculous difference. And it's more than just the fact that they're the boomers, right? They're the tail end of the boomers. That huge uh, bulge of the population are now moving into retirement age or pre-retirement age, right? I mean, it's it. you're looking at dollars and cents at this point. Oh, yeah. It's not just that there's more people, therefore there, there's more bankruptcies. This is the incidence rate. So it's controlling for the population on a per capita basis. Seniors are more at risk of debt problems than ever before. And why, why is that? That sounds a bit crazy. Yeah, there's a bunch of factors for it. You know, a a big part of it is just this mismatch of income and expenses. You know, every year expenses go up. You know, we've got to pay for things and more every single year. And often seniors are on a fixed income. Um, So, you know, their pension might be indexed slightly, but usually not the same effect as prices going up. And we've seen massive amounts of food inflation, you know, shelter Mm. cost inflation in the past few years. So, you know, a piece of it is just the erosion of buying power. You know, a lot of it too is people weren't you know, appropriately ready to retire. You know, in some mm-hmm. cases, they had debt when they stepped into retirement. And if all you're doing is paying the minimums on those debts, you'll probably never pay that debt off. So, you know, we have folks that had a certain debt level and thought they'd clear it before they were going to retire, and they weren't able to do so. And now they've got that debt problem in retirement. Okay. And there's two very specific groups within that one group in terms of money that, that they are in debt with. Yeah, in terms of the amount of debt. So again, the survey population is people that reached out to us for help. So people that realize they had a problem with their debt, they need to sit down, have a free consultation with a professional. And for one in three people, that that metric of when they knew they needed help, it was between $25,000 and $49,000 of debt. 
So you can imagine that's very significant, right? Yeah, you know, going not, into pre-retirement with that kind of debt. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's but a what, lot. what's even more shocking is, you know, second to that. So that was one one in three or thirty three percent. A full twenty six percent of respondents to the survey actually owed more than that. They owed fifty to ninety nine thousand dollars. And we're talking this is outside of mortgages, outside of car loans. This is consumer debt. So credit cards, lines of credit, student loans, income taxes. Yes, seniors sometimes do have student loans. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it's just a, a massive number. Um, this generation also had the largest proportion of people who owed $100,000 or more, which wow. again, you can just imagine that's a, that's a pretty hard, hard thing to get your head around $100,000 of debt. You know, part of it could be they've got, you know, more time to accumulate debt. They're obviously older than a youth generation would be. Um, but also it just speaks to a lack of resources to retire the debt. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Right. So how did, how did they get into this situation? Yeah. So we, we asked that question and the, the most common response, it's almost the same across all the demographics is we all put it on ourselves. So we say, you know, it was overextension of credit. It was financial mismanagement. That was 30% of, of survey respondents said to us, you know what, I could have done a better job, but I just didn't manage things the right way. Having done this work for a long time, I'm of the view it's never just one um, cause. And, you know, usually it's not just the individual. You know, yes, you ran up the credit cards, but did the bank have to give $50,000 of credit to somebody on a fixed income? No, you didn't have to say yes either, but they didn't have to offer it. So there there can be some shared responsibility. Sure. Now, the other factors are what you would tend to think. Um, so the second largest reason why people, senior citizens, or the pre-retirement generation would have difficulties is illness, illness, injury, or health-related problems. So, you know, obviously, common sense-wise, as we age, our productive capacity decreases. We start to have more, you know, issues with our health. And just, you know, a small health issue can su- suddenly snowball if it impacts your ability to earn income income and keep up on some debt payments if you're already in debt. Right. And the, and the key thing, too, that you mentioned, it's not necessarily just this generation, too, that has that kind of a number of illness, injury, mm-hmm. health-related problems, because we've talked in the past in a, about a, a young woman who was in her 30s yeah. who got into a, a debt situation because she had was dealing with cancer. So mm-hmm. it's not just this uh, generation that has that, but it's certainly a component. And what's the last one, or what's the third one that you've seen? Yeah, the, the last one is all job-related. So whether it's an unemployment you know, forced to take an early retirement, a layoff, a reduction in pay. Um, age discrimination is alive and well. I see Absolutely it every it day in my office. Very yeah. qualified people who, you know, maybe they were downsized from a job, you know, three years ago that paid them very well and used all of their skills, and they're struggling to find something for half of the pay these yeah. days. And uh, what they can come down to, and I, I don't disagree, is people don't necessarily want to hire somebody in that type of, in that generation. It's not fair, but it's a reality these yeah. days. Yeah, and they've left their job or had to leave the job because somebody else has come in the door, the other door that they're on their way out of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. So how did, so what were the things, the indicators for these folks that they knew they, they had a serious debt issue? Yeah, for the most part, it was what you would have anticipated. You know, people were getting collection calls, you know, um, calling the morning, noon, and night, making a bunch of threats that can be very distressing to anybody, let alone somebody from an older uh, generation when, you know, clearly not that our word means nothing today, but your word really meant something, you know, for someone born, you know, the 30s, 40s, or, or 50s. Yeah. Um, you know, there's just, there's just a different level, um, I, I find anyway, of, you know, morality of, you know, the personalization of debt that I borrowed this money and I've got to pay it back no matter yeah. what it does to me. So some collection calls can just send that over the top for some individuals. Um, what was really interesting to me um, is the number one cause that caused people to reach out to us was they realized they're only making minimum payments. So that's been a message, Elaine, you and I have tried to get out, you know, for the, the time we've been doing this show is if all you're doing is making your minimum payments, you are not getting ahead. You're falling further behind 
signed each month. So is there a period of time, let's just focus on that for a second, is there a period of months or a number of months that if I'm making minimum payments for two months, but then, I, then I'm back on the third month and being able to uh, make a larger payment mm-hmm. on my credit card, for example, am I still in trouble at that point? Or is there like, is there um you know, a fail-safe number that we should be looking at? Yeah, everyone's situation is different. It's a very good question. I would say, yeah, if you have to make your minimum payments for a few months for a temporary reason, uh, but you know you can catch things back up later, you probably don't have a problem. That's the reason why the minimum payments are set so low is to give you that type of flexibility that if life intervenes and you need to, you know, just pay $100 instead of $500 uh, for a month or two, that's fine. The problem is when it gets to you're struggling to even make that minimum payment. Sometimes you're only making it because it's a cash advance on another card. That's when you get into the impossible situation because eventually you're going to run out of credit space in all of your cards, too many minimum payments to to be made, and the debts have probably multiplied at that point because every month they're just adding more interest on top of interest. Right. So I'm thinking if, if if you've done this two months in a row, you need to take some action. Yeah, I'd I'd say have a conversation, right? If you you look to the forward and you can't see how it's going to change, yeah, speak to a trustee. It's a free meeting. We're not going to judge you. We're just going to tell you what your options are. Yeah, good point. Okay, great. Um, What kind of things do, did, did this particular generation tend to use to try to get out of debt before they called you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the first thing people do when they find themselves in, in a debt situation is they try to cut their expenses. So, you know, most common ones for the senior demographic is entertainment and dining out. That's the first to go. You know, okay. that's viewed as more of a frivolous indulgence. Sure. And yeah, at a certain level it is, but we all you know need a little bit every once in a while, but definitely that's the first to go. Uh, clothing and, and personal shopping, definitely the second to go, you know, wear old clothes or thrift store or things like that. Yeah. Um, the third one is savings and or retirement contributions. So when I'm going there to take money out of my mm-hmm. savings and use it to pay off my debts, yeah. that's that's a huge red flag. Oh yeah. So the, the worst case for this could be the pre-retirement generation, say someone who's 55 and maybe 10 years away from retirement, and they think they're doing everything right by cashing in their RRSPs to pay their debt because they don't know that RRSPs are protected. Right. And that's the key. Your RRSPs are protected under yeah. a consumer proposal and a bankruptcy yeah. as well. Oh yeah. Even if you didn't do either of those, they're protected under federal law. If somebody sued you, they couldn't take your RRSPs. See, that's really, really important for Mm -hmm. people to know. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Using assets to pay down their debt. Yeah, so so quite often seniors will, you know, if they've got any real estate, they're going to go and get either a reverse mortgage or a home equity line of credit and, you know, use all of that that equity to, to pay out the debts. And we get bombarded with those mm-hmm. ads and commercials and suggestions that that's a great way to do it. Yeah, and you've got to be buyer beware. In some situations, it is a great way. In some situations, I have clients that wish they had never heard the name of that, of that program because it hasn't been good for them. Uh, so each generation facing owns their own specific challenges. What are some of the uh, ones that the pre-retirement retirement generation are up against at this point? Well, one that I hear a lot is that, you know, retirement, it should be all about them and their needs, but quite often they're still um, supporting either adult children or grandchildren, mm-hmm. you know, the bank of grandma or grandpa, it's it's still alive and well Absolutely quite often. Absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. Yeah. So there can be pressure, you know, whether it's social or otherwise, you know, um, to, to really 
ex- make some expenditures for the family, whether it's paying for a trip or paying for education for somebody. Um, and sometimes the, the senior citizen doesn't really want to let everyone know the tough situation that they're in. So they just say yes. And, yeah. and they do their best and they put things on credit, hoping to deal with it another day. Even like special classes or courses or programs that they want their grandkids to do. I mean, I've seen and heard, uh, you know, grandparents who just spending a fortune and I'm thinking, how, how can you guys, how can you do that? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other piece of it is, of course, pensions are, are any pensions tied to, uh, the rate of inflation anymore or are they all just stagnant and, yeah, I mean, depending well, on depending on the pension. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, again, some cost of living arrangements, you know, for OAS or CPP or some okay. private pensions. So, but, you know, usually, again, it's less than what your actual inflation is. Um, you know, food inflation has been massive, as have, you know, fuel and different things in the past few years, far greater than what the index has shown. So it's a fixed income. Yeah. It's, essentially, yeah, there, there's no big windfalls. There's no huge increase to to your financial resources each month. And, you know, another thing, Elaine, that, that we see too in this demographic, and I was quite surprised, what's the idea of gray divorce? So it's people divorcing, you know, much later in life than you might have thought. You know, they've raised the kids, the kids are gone, and kind of they look at each other and say, well, why are we still together yeah, here? <laughs> so, I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, trying to live through a divorce at Very that, that stage in your life, um, you know, there could be some division of retirement assets, there could be, you know, sales of various things, and there could be some debts that uh, we know one partner might be left holding the back. With. Yeah, especially, uh, you know, real estate is often the, the retirement mm-hmm. uh, investment or the thing that's going to get you through. And yikes, with a gray divorce, that's just not going to be the case. Mm-hmm. The website sands-trustee.com is the website. You can book a free consultation with one of their experts. Their phone number uh, that they're available at, certainly during the week, Monday to Friday, 1-800-661-3030, and get that free consultation and find an office near you. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So debt can come from all kinds of places, not just credit cards. Mm -hmm. I think that's the first thing probably people think of. Um, So let's look at other debts that can show up that can cause all kinds of problems for us. Yeah, I'd say almost every client that we have has a credit card. You know, it's probably high 90 percentile and things like that. But there's a bunch of other debts that, yeah, unless you've, you've been in this debt, you might not even know it exists. Um, I think the point of today's segment is we can fix just about everything. And here's a bunch of other types of debts um, that we can potentially help with. But let's talk about each of the debts, how they arise and what you can do with them. Yeah. And I want to just throw in there, we're talking about a licensed insolvency trustee, mm-hmm. an LIT. They're the ones who, which Blair is one. They're the folks that can actually help you uh, manage all kinds of these, all the debts. Yeah, we're the only person you need to see. If you've got a debt problem in Canada, we can help. Okay, so some types of debt that most people would think of as being a cause of problems would be credit mm-hmm. cards for sure. Yep. Uh, overdrafts, I guess so. It's not mm-hmm. very. I'm not very familiar with the whole overdraft idea, mm-hmm. but I guess people do get into problems with it. Oh yeah, and I see that with you know some people if they've had an account with the bank for 20 years, they might have a ten thousand dollar overdraft, a twenty thousand dollar overdraft. You know, the average person might have five hundred bucks or something like that, okay. just in case they you know write a check or something that goes a bit bigger. But yeah, overdraft can be a significant problem. And lines of credit, certainly. I, mm-hmm. I know that uh, I'm familiar with that. Oh, yeah. Something to keep in something to keep tabs on for sure. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the other ones other than those three. 
Yeah, let's start with the big one. Uh, so Canada Revenue Agency, Huge. tax debts. So we talk about this a lot on the, on the program here. And CRA is probably the worst person you could owe money to um, because they've got the most power and also the least ability to compromise on that debt unless you're actually dealing with a licensed insolvency trustee. So how this often arises um, is, you know, either somebody is self-employed and when you're self-employed, nobody tells you that you now got to be your own accountant, your own bookkeeper, your own tax preparer. And if you do something wrong or don't put the money aside, well, the government's going to come asking for that money next year and you might not have it. Yeah. You know, sometimes it happens when you're working a second job. You know, you think you're doing everything right by increasing your income, but you don't tell the second employer that now you're going to be in a higher tax bracket so they should be withholding more tax from you and you end up with a tax bill. Or you yourself don't think of that to yeah. put that money aside exactly. so you've got it at the end of the year. And that's very challenging to mm-hmm. do. So however it happens, you know, the end result is you owe the government some money and they start sending you these notices that say, hey, you know, include full payment with your response back to this letter or else we're going to take some action against you. And what that action is, again, more so than any other creditor without even suing you, they can go straight to your employer. They can take up to 30% of your wages. Um, they can go straight to your bank account and take everything that's in there. Um, and if you own real estate, they can go and register on title um, to that real estate and make sure they get paid when you sell. So if you've got some tax debt, it's really important that you come in and you talk to a licensed insolvency trustee and we figure out what we can do to keep CRA at bay and work out a deal. And we can safely say, talk to an LIT, not a credit counselor, Absolutely. and not a what the other one was, the agency. Yeah, that, debt settlement debt agency. Debt settlement no. agency. The only person that can ever make a deal on your tax debt is going to be a licensed insolvency trustee. Now, is that the same situation with a student loan if I happen mm-hmm. to be somebody who's got a, a huge student loan at this point? Yeah, exactly. Now, with, with a student loan, the remedies are still the same, meaning that it's a government debt, it doesn't go away over time, and they theoretically could come and take your wages or your assets, but most of the time with student loans, they're a lot more reasonable. You know, oh. they tend to look at the situation. You know, didn't you didn't get the student loan because you were self-employed and didn't pay tax? You got the student loan because you tried to go to school to invest in yourself. And you know, if things aren't working out after graduation often they're more reasonable in their collections. Now, it does hit, you know, eventually a limit point where they're not going to wait forever. And if you can't make any payments, eventually they're going to be just like Canada Revenue Agency and start to seize wages or take assets. Um, but typically it takes a little bit longer for them to get to that point than just a tax debt. And again, the output here is you can absolutely make a deal on your student loans. You have to do it as part of a consumer proposal or as part of a bankruptcy. And as we talked about a few times, when you have student debt in Canada, there's at least a five-year waiting period from when you graduate to when that debt can be reduced. So you got to graduate, make your best efforts to, to pay the debt back, and then you can deal with a trustee. That's a really important point, too. It's not something you can get looked after right away. Mm-hmm. You've got to make an effort and, and then not be able to look after it anymore. Yeah, that's right. Okay. What about payday loans? Yeah, payday loans. Um, you know, this one I've often called the crack cocaine of debt um, yeah. because Ugh. it's you know it's it's the easiest to access. It's very inexpensive theoretically to start to get into it, um, but it never stops at just one payday loan. It often escalates to the point where people have five payday loans, ten, even fifteen, outstanding at a certain time. So. Usually payday loans are a big warning sign that if you were deciding about, hey, I'm going to phone the trustee or I'm going to get a payday loan to get me through to, you know, to the next payday, 
phone the trustee instead. Yeah. Uh, because I speak to so many people, the payday loan cycle, all it did was delay them getting help by six months or 12 months or something like that. And they didn't feel good about it the whole time because they knew they were paying 400, 500% interest on the funds. Every loan they get, they have to take another one to pay it back. Um, so yeah, it can be a very, very difficult cycle to get out of. And think about that, four or 500%. Yeah. That's crazy. Oh yeah, it's theoretically illegal, but there's a carve out for specific payday loans. Oh. So you know, they're able to do it. I know the government, you know, every year they change the regulations a bit and you know, now it's lower than it was, but it, it's still very ridiculous, just the, the costs and fees on it. Uh, with payday loans, no special status whatsoever. If you file a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal, you can absolutely reduce that debt just like anybody else. And I would say to folks out there, if you've got a bunch of payday loans and you know they're threatening you with collection agencies and different things like that, talk to a trustee because odds are if it's a fairly small amount of money, they're never going to sue you and we can tell you what you can do to get some of the power back in that relationship. Okay. Co-signing. I think this is one of the most important things that we talk about on this show uh, because mm-hmm. I had no idea of the stipulations that come along with co-signing for someone's debt. You're trying to help them out, give them a hand up. Maybe it's your kids, maybe it's your grandkids, who knows, Mm -hmm. but... It's huge. Let's talk about that. Yeah. In, in the, the book, When Life Bites You in the Wallet, that I co-authored with uh, Leanne Davies, you know, we have a page in there that says, you know, when is it right to co-sign? The answer is almost never. It almost never makes sense. And in just about every situation that I've been involved in with Sands and Associates, the folks that have co-signed did so never thinking that they would have to be called to account for that debt. So, you know, it's often it's a parent who puts their name on the the son or daughter's line of credit for university, or it's someone that goes on the mortgage because they couldn't qualify otherwise, or it's someone that gets a supplementary card on a credit card account and doesn't realize they're actually going to be responsible for the balance there. So this the basically commonality there is you need to understand if you co-sign something, it's what's called joint and several liability, meaning if they don't pay, you have to pay 100%. It's not 50-50 or anything like that. And if you've co-signed a debt and the person files for bankruptcy or does a proposal, you'll be on the hook for that entire debt. So before you co-sign, think through the absolute worst case, be prepared that you may have to pay this debt. And that usually causes people to think twice before signing their name. Really important. MSP premiums, how do they work? How do they fit into this? MSP premiums are very similar um, you know, to government debt, to Canada Revenue Agency, and to student loans. Um, so not every province has MSP premiums. And you know, oftentimes, if you've got a big MSP debt, the reason you weren't paying MSP is probably because your income was really low. And when you go through and file your taxes, that MSP debt might actually disappear because some of it is geared to income. But what doesn't disappear, you're able to deal with, with either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. Um, MSP, I have seen them take collection actions against folks you know, with collection aid agencies with seizing wages, seizing assets. So not something you can ignore, but before you worry about MSP, worry about getting your tax filing caught up first, because oftentimes that debt will go away. I like this. And I just want to repeat this part again on our notes here for this segment. The MSP premium calculations are driven by your tax return filings. So if your taxes aren't filed to date and you haven't heard from MSP, you can probably expect a bill waiting for you, which I don't you know, that was a surprise to me when I first learned that. Oh, yeah, they'll charge you the maximum unless you give them better information. Um, so, yeah, rather than being worried about it, get the taxes filed. And there's there's no benefit in this world of not filing your taxes. The worst thing you can be with Sierra is not to owe them money. It's to be someone that hasn't filed taxes. So even if it's going to be bad news, do the filing. Sierra is going to be less likely to collect aggressively against you if you filed rather than if you haven't filed. Okay. And the last segment or last piece of this discussion about shortfalls, mortgage, foreclosure, 
foreclosure, vehicle financing, that's a certainly a debt that we we have all either currently have or have had. Yeah, so it, you know, definitely, you know, mortgage shortfall. If CMHC has insured your mortgage and the place goes into foreclosure, CMHC keeps the lender whole, but they come to you for that shortfall. So again, another government debt. You got to be really careful and face it head on. If any of this information resonates with you, give Sands and Associates a call one eight hundred six six one thirty thirty for that free consultation or their website sands-trustee.com. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.